Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Block Fuel Podcast. Today we are joined here by Doug Canix uh, of Live Peer. Thanks for having me on. I guess to kick things off, we always have our guests explain a little bit about, of course, what their company is doing, but you could just share a little bit more about your journey. Uh, I know you co-founded two other companies, Wildcard and Hyperpublic, to your current role, of course, now as the CEO of Live Peer. So if you just want a quick start off on your previous companies and what brought you to create Live Peer, and then, of course, a high-level overview here as well. Sure thing. Yeah. Excited to be here. I've been a long time. Uh, builder of software, computer science background, and always um, sort of had the entrepreneurial band. So I've been working in early stage startups for a while. Um, the first startup that I worked on uh, was called Republic. It was a local data infrastructure company. It had a good outcome. One of our customers, Groupon, acquired us as we were growing, and we became their data team. And we got to see sort of the rise of Groupon, which was a, a huge growth story in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then um, worked on a second startup called Wildcard, which is focused on the shift from desktop web to mobile web. And we had this publishing platform that could convert websites into mobile-friendly experiences and push cards into platforms. And that startup actually didn't work out, even though everything that we thought would happen happened. And a lot of the reason was because we were building on Facebook and Google and Twitter and Pinterest, and all of them sort of changed or closed their developer APIs built their own versions of what we were building as everything shifted to mobile and mm. worked direct with our customers. And we kind of got cut out of our opportunity. And that was a real learning experience. When I say we, I'm talking about my co-founder, Eric and I, who are co-founders here at LivePeer. We sort of had this moment of never again are we going to rely on you know, the big tech companies and their APIs for our distribution, our future. And it was fortuitous timing because that was right around when Ethereum had just launched as a um, sort of brand new developer platform that was open, permissionless, and kind of interestingly had a way to embed economic incentives into software. And really, this is really cool. Um, like many people, got interested, went down the rabbit hole, and uh, you know, because of our interest in video engineer from the previous startup, we recognized well, decentralization brings a ton of benefits to video. Uh, no one's building a, a media layer for this new stack that's emerging on top of blockchains. We see an opportunity actually for the first time creating open and cost-effective video infrastructure, open source video software that can be owned by the users that are developing it, maintaining it, and running these networks. And that's how the idea for LivePeer was born. That's what we're, we're doing at LivePeer. We're building world's open video infrastructure, and we're you know, seven years into our journey. So would you say, you know, for those that are maybe less familiar with the Web3 space, is it similar to the YouTube, but more decentralized effectively? Um, we're more similar to infrastructure like Amazon Web Services, AWS, or Cloud, and some of these these video companies that maybe your average consumer hadn't, haven't heard of, like a Brightcove or a Mux.com, because those are the underlying video technology that powers all the the video that flows through the internet video is 80% of the traffic on the the internet and there's yeah. a, a lot of what you required to power it all so think of it as the you know the servers under the hood behind something like a youtube or a tiktok very we, we saw another interviewer you know explaining that point where there's a lot of competing interests where netflix you know at one time or maybe still is the biggest consumer of aws you know cloud compute infrastructure and then now Netflix competes for eyeballs with Amazon's streaming service. So Amazon owns the infrastructure that Netflix runs on. And then you also have a competing service. 
And so I think that's a really good point of why connecting the dots of why life here is so important is because, wait, like, how would you ever compete with Amazon? You know, if they're coming out and can come out with any product that you currently do, <laughs> then, and they have the underlying infrastructure, then how do others like actually go in and like, you know, do something that they you know, can succeed, can scale, can grow without being priced out from the base layer? Totally. Yeah. Here, if you're, like Amazon owns Twitch, Twitch is a hugely popular live streaming site, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to build your own Twitch competitor, but you have to pay, you know, 80 cents for every dollar you make straight back to Amazon in order to run on their infrastructure, how can you possibly sustain yourself that way? You're literally paying your biggest competitor um, in order to use their infrastructure. It doesn't seem like a, a viable starting point. So live gear helps those startups competing with Twitch in, in two ways. One is uh, live peer infrastructure is typically up to 80 or 90% more cost effective than running on Amazon Web Services Cloud or other cloud providers. I mean, get into you know, how, how that's possible, but um, you know, it's pretty exciting and interesting. And also just this open and independent nature of it. So, you know, live peer is not run by one company. It's run by hundreds of node operators around the world. That are that are powering this infrastructure, and it's not one company or competitor, Amazon, that could deplatform you or change prices on you or cut you out. Sort of like our previous startup got cut out, you know, by the big tech platforms. You're using this open network that uh, is independent and, and you can't be deplatformed from. So that's also a compelling value proposition. But I think the you know the cost effective infrastructure, cost effective compute is really. The main value proposition that a lot of video developers respond to. So thinking about how Apple and, and some of these bigger companies can change their terms of service on a, on a whim, do you guys have any gatekeeper involved with that in the sense of if there's, you know, some really X-rated videos or things that depict hatred or, or possibly killing or things that potentially should not be seen on the internet? Do you Have you guys run into any of those issues or how do you guys view that? Yeah, that's an important question because I, I actually like, don't believe that fully censorship video site would be a you know a great thing for the world. It would, it would bring more benefits to the world than like the harm that it would cause, right? And and so I've written quite a bit about this. It's interesting. There's different levels this is addressed. First of all, the applications themselves are responsible for their own activities, their own compliance with laws, regulation. Just because mm -hmm. they're a decentralized infrastructure doesn't mean that they can break laws in the jurisdiction they're running and they still need to be responsible for their users. Um, mm. But at our infrastructure and network level, there, there's a couple of things. One is many builders use this network through a hosted product that we built called Live Peer Studio. That product has terms of service, just like any, any company, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, users need to adhere to them. You know, you could avoid that product. You could build direct on the network and there, all these node operators, the people providing their infrastructure, do have the ability to make their own choices about what type of content or applications they're providing the compute power for or the bandwidth for. And that's where we get into the, providing the right tooling for the node operators to make those decisions and the, the right hooks are important. That's how we build responsibly. There's you know, experiments where we have these AI-based compute jobs that can classify hey, is this content violent content? Is this content adult content? Is this content copyrighted content or likely to be copyrighted content? Because those are useful for anyone building an uh, application mm -hmm. that may help with content moderation, but also for our node operators that may not want to 
um, have their hardware or, or network used for those types of use cases. Yeah, I, I think along with that, it sounds really interesting because you know, like this week we were, I was reading an article on a certain Bitcoining, the coin miner that was choosing not to mine blocks with ordinals in them because they said, hey, like we don't want to include, you know, these inscriptions, they're increasing fees, they don't have to, or in their opinion, they don't have to do with the ethos of, you know, Satoshi white paper. So in this way, you're taking that a step further and allowing your individual node operators to see really what the video, what the creator are, what the source is and say, and make a decision to say, Hey, we do want to process compute for them. Or maybe this is not something, you know, a group we want to be involved with, we can step away. And so I guess, how are you serving that information to those node operators to make those decisions? Yeah, well, it, it's worth noting that, hey, these node operators are the ones with the hardware that is doing video processing, right? And just the nature of that task is that a video comes in, it's being decoded onto their hardware, their device, and re-encoded into different formats. And so it's not so much that like me, Doug, or us live here are feeding them informa information or letting them see what videos the users are coding. That's actually like the nature of the task they're performing and the nature of the network is that people are letting them access their video in order to provide this encoding functionality, right? And it makes sense for use cases like social media, user-generated content that's public by default. It, it, you know, does it make sense with that level of privacy for, you know, some super encrypted confidential type of asset that you, you wouldn't want to trust on a public network? And mm -hmm. I think it's just the nature of the beast that they have access to the decoded video in order to do the compute on it that they're being paid to do. I just read an article you wrote on the International Business Times, and I guess this was about a month ago you had written this, and it said, remember these letters, D-E-P-I-N. So if we could dive into that a little bit, because you said they might just save us from the future in which the tech behemoths dictate how we experience the artificial intelligence revolution. And coming into this election year, there's a lot of disinformation. AI has been a buzzword, you know, the past several months and continues to grow. And you see President Biden talking about this right now. And so curious if you could just dive in a little bit more about that and, and how it may impact the, the coming months and years ahead. Would help if I did a quick, you know, 30 second background on, on DPIN or DPIN. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's an acronym. It stands for Decentralized Physical Infrastructure Networks. And the notion is it's just a, a it's a class of blockchain networks or protocols that have incentivized people to actually deploy like physical hardware around the real world. So interesting examples are like Helium Network has incentivized people to deploy little wireless radios on their roofs all around the world to create a wireless network. Or Demo has incentivized people to install little devices in their cars that are collecting data as they drive around. Right. So these are like physical infrastructure things that have been deployed. And networks like LiveGear have incentivized people to deploy GPUs all around the world to do local, localized video encoding. And I think this class of, of protocols, just like other categories that people talk about, are like this is NFT protocols, or these are DeFi protocols, or these are stablecoin protocols. This category of DPEN, I think is really exciting and really interesting because they typically have like inarguable real world impact and real world use cases like we're powering video streaming a 240 billion dollar industry that everyone whether they know about blockchains or not like experience every day right like wireless networks 
everyone is connecting via their cell phone or their smart devices to the internet wirelessly. These things have real utility. And so I'm like really excited about this category as, you know, these great examples of making the services and infrastructure that provide those capabilities much more cost-effective, much more accessible, much more open and independent, right? And so now back to the article you're referencing and tying this to to AI, right? There is Mm -hmm. a, AI obviously is a hugely important and powerful trend in technology. It's a paradigm shift and there's a whole explosion of investment and innovation going on in the AI space. It's going to affect everything we do, the way we work, the way we learn, et cetera, right? The sort of the, the key commodity that enables all this AI computing are these devices called GPUs, graphical processing units that are deployed in data centers around the world. That's sort of the power behind all these AI models for both the training and the inference, which is applying these models when people, you know, ask a question or give a prompt or need, need some compute done. And there's almost a monopoly power on these, G- or monopoly sort of control on these GPUs by the big tech cloud providers. You know, Microsoft, Azure has probably one of the biggest GPU deployments in the world. Google Cloud has probably one of the biggest customers of GPUs. NVIDIA makes the majority of the GPUs that yeah. are powering. They sell to these big cloud customers who've been in line for years and pre-buying all their capacity and their year-long waiting list and everything. And we saw this play out just in the last couple of weeks with OpenAI being a huge AI company. Who's their biggest investor? It's Microsoft, who mm-hmm. invests by giving them access to the GPUs in the, the cloud data center so that all of the compute would be run inside Microsoft. And who's going to win at the end of the day if OpenAI succeeds? Like Microsoft is going to win and they're going to control yet another paradigm shifting technology. And DPIN networks are these open networks that actually incentivize people to put their idle capacity, their, their idle GPUs onto these networks from anywhere in the world and to actually crowdsource and form these huge networks of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of these GPU devices that are not controlled and owned just by Microsoft and Google, but are owned by thousands or more people around the world and are accessible to anyone that wants to build openly on an open marketplace is super powerful. This is a and, and by the way, the prices these networks are charging are subject not just to the price that Microsoft sends they're going to set. Um, and maybe agrees with Google that neither of them are going to drop their price below this, this level, but are subject to the pr- open price competition amongst, you know, thousands of individuals around the world that have different GPUs, different characteristics, locations, different latencies. And you actually see the sort of result of these deep end networks being these amorphous market force determined, super efficient allocation of resources. So I actually think what you will see, more you believe it live here, is these networks will be as cost-effective as humanly possible because there's complete open price competition amongst thousands of market participants. You'll see them be hopefully infinitely scaled because any idle resource in the world can be available to come on these networks when there is enough demand and they can adjust their prices accordingly. And so theoretically, any idle capacity in the world should be available to, to come on. And as a result of that cost effectiveness and, and scale, they should be maximally reliable. And so, you know, I think in the AI mm-hmm. world, this is really important for GPU. NVIDIA 
it's hugely important, but the internet is very expensive. And, and the fact mm-hmm. that you can find a local provider that's you know, infinitely scalable and maximally cost-effective is hugely attractive. And that's sort of why LivePeer has the opportunity to be a disruptive video infrastructure. Yeah. I, I think along with that it would be really like on the education piece, I, I know a newer word to a lot of us before really getting into blockchain was prominence. And could you explain a little bit about that, what that is and like how you know, live peer can be used as a, a tool. Certainly, as Avi mentioned, going into election year and we're worried about misinformation. Who created the video? Is it a real or AI generated video? And that's something that really, I think, taps into the fear of people that really shows the value of the live peer network. Could you first, I guess, explain provenance and like what that means, but also some of the tooling that you guys have created? Yeah. When I think about provenance, I think about sort of the irrefutable record of how an asset was created or who created an asset. And then it's, you could think of it as the custody chain of who owned that asset, who modified it, what were the modifications, and all along the chain of its life cycle. And this becomes really interesting in media, because as you were referencing, you want people to be able to trust that the media that they're seeing is real. I think your election cycle example is spot on. We've heard about the, the meme of fake news. We've seen how quickly misinformation can spread. I think there's a a hope or a belief that if people could trust that, hey, this video was actually captured or published by this person who attested to the creation of it, and they could trust that it was not modified, or if it was modified, like if it was transcoded so it could be delivered on, over the internet, then they could trust like what device did that or what company or network did that. And uh, if there's any additional transformations, like if there were AIs, you, AIs used to upscale it or to enhance it in some way, you know, like what that process was and, and where it was performed. And you could get the confidence that, hey, this is not a deep fake or this is not something, you know, it was manipulated along the way. And it's a tricky problem. You know, Live here is interested in this, in the sense that we have great open source software and builders in our ecosystem that have used it to try and create solutions here. And we're interested because blockchains are a great tool for recording records of things that happened in places where those records can't be changed. So for example, if a videographer creates a digital signature around a video they created and, and puts that signature on a blockchain, then any other anyone else can prove after the fact that, hey, I have this video and it was not modified and it was signed by this videographer. And they can actually look at the data and the bits and prove it wasn't wasn't changed. And so we've seen prototypes and proofs of concept built using live peer blockchains um, to, to enable these solutions. But yeah, the, the ultimate product where people consume these things at the end of the day and have the trust, that, that's a tricky one because it requires even the applications to hmm. showcase and use this provenance data to give users confidence that they're looking at something that, you know, is the truth or is not the truth. And, you know, that requires the putting in the right interfaces and having the right check marks and users understanding that and, and all that as well. Uh, there's a really cool example of this that people might want to Google. I'm, I'm looking up what it's called. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine uh, put out an article called The DJ and the War Crimes. And it's a whole article where uh, every piece of media in it, you can click in and you can see who captured the photo, Mm. Yeah, who modified it, where it was uploaded, et cetera. 
And it's basically re- revealing that, you know, someone who's a popular DJ these days, actually, there's like evidence that he was a murderous war criminal in, in Bosnia um, mm. back in, in 1992. And they had and they have like the bull like chain of proof and evidence to to prove this. So it's a it's a pretty interesting and compelling example. That's wild. I did not see that going there. Uh, one one thing, just to, on a lighter note, I guess that's, that's pretty wild. But I'm really excited about some of the recent collaborations. So you guys got Art Basel coming up, right? And one of the things that I was looking up, obviously the Coinbase Base House, uh, is super exciting. So I definitely want you to touch on that. Um, but even more intriguing for me, I guess personally, was uh, what you guys are doing with here and now. So if I'm understanding from what I read, it's going to be a, a video that's going to be created, released, and streamed at the same time on chain using the live peer network. So that's happening like tomorrow, I believe, on December 8th. Yeah, yeah. Here and now, like, we'll know when we see it, right? I think what you just described is why we're super excited about it. It's like, what's going to happen here? Why? Yeah. <laughs> A couple of really inspired and creative filmmakers are running this experiment where they're going to have the community and the NFT holders participate in the creation, the production, the release of this film in real time. Sounds like a great experiment. Yeah, tying in community participation, tying in community ownership through NFTs and, and seeing what sort of incentives there are. I, I think it's just a great example of a like type of innovative experiment that you get when you combine media traditional media and now these like new primitives that blockchains can enable to see hey how does this change the future of media how do we create like new formats and new experiences and new Mm -hmm. multiplayer games if you will that are that are interesting and exciting and inspiring to people and so yeah i'm excited to see what comes of that i'm glad that live peer can be a partner empowering the, the video infrastructure for it so in your role as ceo like i guess what are kind of the things that you're ending the year now. You're thinking of like, okay, 2023, this is where we check the boxes. And then, so we start to see coming out of the bear market, at least, you know, with the overall like blockchain crypto industry, like what do you see as kind of your big goals for next year? Is it driving more apps? Is it, you know, showcasing the technology or are you going to be looking at more like, hey, we need to build out our node infrastructure. We need to, you know, you came from like the engineering background. So you're coming from more like, hey, this needs to be more resilient. Like, what what would you say are your priorities? Yeah, um, so like generating more demand on the live peer network has been a top priority, continues to be a top priority, and, and there's sort of two two big two big bets related to that. The one that's always been ongoing is the product called Live Peer Studio, which is a great developer facing access point to build your video application reliably, cost effectively, at scale. You know, my partner Eric is really focused on that and continue to lean into to growing that in you know, 2024. It's, it's working, working really well. So excited about that growth. Uh, I'm looking at a little, a little uh, more forward thinking, a little bit more to the future and thinking about expanding the capabilities of the live peer network, um, beyond just, you know, video transcoding and the surrounding software for video streaming. We were talking about AI before and how that's touching everything, including video. AI is a great tool for video creation and it can lower the barrier to like creating video. And I'm excited about things like generate video where users can just give text prompts or image prompts. And, you know, the, the network of GPUs, the live peer network could actually play a role in generating videos from this. And then there's also all sorts of sort of AI processing enhancement type tools 
for video, like I mentioned, upscaling to take low quality videos and make them HD at high quality automatically. There's things like automatic subtitle generation that could just be generating the captions for what we're saying right now. Mm-hmm. There's you make videos interactive by having the AIs identify what objects are in the videos and make them clickable and you know link to the products that that they represent or you know create interactive experiences like polls and surveys in videos. And so you know I'm going to be focused on you know, it's on the roadmap that I published a, a couple of weeks ago adding more job types to the network, bringing the AI video compute onto the, the live peer network. And and that should expand the, you know, what you can build within and, and bring more demand onto live peer. You touched on this a, a little bit, but I want to get into uh, more of like the future of media and creators thinking of like Facebook changing their name to the metaverse. Thought you kind of touched on that with that generative AI, but thinking about like virtual worlds, would just love to hear your take on, on and if is that going to take off? We heard a lot of noise about that. It's such a dichotomy of people that love virtual worlds and then people that are like, this is never going to take off. I'm seeing this going to take off. And as we already started to see people on Zoom, I'm starting to see people get in like more of a virtual face that they're having. And it's pretty cool to see some of this technology take off. So are you like, personally, are you, are you excited about the, the metaverse and you're talking about some of this generative AI? So we'd love to hear your take on where that can go and some of the challenges that may come about as, as it builds. Yeah, I think your reference to like, we're already talking heads on Zoom matches my thinking a little bit more. I, I believe that we, there's like an online internet, uh, digital space and mm-hmm. an internet economy. And I think, you know, blockchains and cryptocurrencies are great tools for like the money layer of that economy and these great communication platforms or, you know, communication layers in this online digital world, which is more global and borderless and permissionless than maybe our like, traditional nation states and cities mm-hmm. and local economies and whatnot. And I think, you know, online games and online digital platforms and chat rooms like Discord and stuff represent these online spaces. I don't know if we're all going to be running around as avatars in, in one virtual world more than the physical world, but I, mm-hmm. I certainly think, uh, you know, this digital world, this online world becomes more important in our day-to-day lives and, and probably we're interacting with it in more and more of our time and, and more, more frequently. And, and I think video is obviously a key element in how we interact, engage, learn, work in this world. So I'm confident about the growth of video as things opt to like the online verse, if you will. Yeah. Super interesting. You saw it with like the writer's strike and just hearing what they can actually do and create like a digital clone of, of an actor potentially that's even deceased. And then they're licensing their voice and their likeness essentially. Like it, it's just a wild thing. And I've heard some really cool songs as well on the, on the audio side of things where they're like mixing up. I think it was like Johnny Cash singing Taylor Swift and like there's all these rappers singing other rappers' songs. That's so from a user perspective. It's super entertaining, but from the, the actual actors and, and creatives themselves. Do you think this is like the second coming of Napster where they're going to get like screwed out of the situation? And I uh, would just love to hear your take on that. I think it's, I think for like you will see new media types that are different than just screwing existing creators out of the same type of content. So, you know, the, the four minute pop song or whatever probably is still going to be created by a band or an artist or an individual creator and you know 
AIs that are generating music might be generating something that's a different, totally different format. It might be much shorter. It might like, it might be like a 30 second TikTok style soundbite. It might be, you know, created generating ambient music that plays in the background while people work and then that replaces whatever. I, I think about that with video a lot. Yeah. There's all this great music that's online that could use music videos. Like should AIs be generating like traditional music videos that match this or should we think of more what it generates is like supporting visuals for mm-hmm. this that different and are a different format. And so I know it's a little abstract where I'm going, but I think just the way you can think of like TikTok is an entirely different format than what yeah. like a YouTube video was before. I think you'll see whatever AIs generate as being consumed and like working in different formats and the type of media we consume today. And by the way, I think like humans, their role changes. Like AIs can generate so much content so mm-hmm. easily. Humans need to play a role in like curating it or taste making it or telling what's good or giving the right inputs to the AIs. And I think you'll see interesting new like, like maybe instead of being a, a singer that writes and creates the song, you're just mm-hmm. a great like AI producer. Yeah, and that type of creator becomes, you know, powerful. In this we, we still are like the Geppetto kind of puppeteering exactly what happens and t- until the point where we're not and the computers start generating <laughs> their own shit, which will start to get very scary. Jerry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of like Rick Rubin where we're like, we're not making a sound, but we're like curating it and, and building the album. Influence. And- <laughs> yeah, I guess. So this is. He just has really good ta- conviction in his taste. Yeah, I actually saw him yeah. at a restaurant once in, in L.A. and said hello to him. Very interesting guy. You wouldn't think he's like famous. He looks like he's not. And then you go off and you realize that he's been touching every single piece, artist basically ever. So very cool. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I want to ask about was, you know, if Life Period, you guys have been around seven years and from your seat, it's super interesting. A few years ago, you know, and maybe more than a few years ago, we really got into the heated like net neutrality debate. From your seat, would love to hear what your take on it is, is as you're looking at decentralized and you mentioned like the Apple terms of service. And do you think that this has been something that has ended up being not really a massive issue now? Or do you think that it easily shows how fragile things are going through internet service providers and that we really do need to push forward for decentralization faster because it, it is a very like, you know, is subject to three to four companies deciding, you know, what to stream the fastest. Yeah, I'm with you more on the latter. I think it's a, a really good reminder and a really good eye opener of how there's still like a final boss left to fight. Like we can think that we're building these open permissionless systems at the application layer, the infrastructure layer, and then, but then as soon as you realize you get to like the connectivity layer and you're just subject to the whims of, you know, the one monopoly service provider in your area that, that provides connectivity to your your home, your data center, your business, et cetera. It's like, oh, you actually still can be cut off. You, you still can be a platform. You can't actually rely on this as a free and open internet. Uh, but the good news is, you know, people realize that and there are projects that are actually working to incentivize and build open connectivity layers. And yeah, it's challenging. Not anyone can lay, you know, a fiber cable underneath the ocean, but especially as you know, you get satellite-based connectivity and, you know, things like wireless 
wireless mesh networks within in cities and whatnot. You can actually build more resilience. So I do think things you know that are are being built, like what Helium is working on from these the yeah. wireless network perspective, is super important because yeah, with the net neutrality debate, debate if these connectivity service providers can just give preferential speed and bandwidth or access at all to the companies that pay them, you know, de-platform or deprioritize the traffic of startups or competitors, then uh, that's pretty anti-competitive and there's not a lot of options to push back against it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the last question here, and we always ask this to most of our guests, is really what keeps you up at night? Are you fearful that crypto regulations will now come into decentralized architecture and, and what you guys are building? I don't know how much time you spend with people in DC knocking on your guys' door. And then I guess to, to wrap it up too, at the very end, what are you most excited about with LivePeer moving forward? Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, the regulatory landscape in the US is not my biggest fear. My biggest nightmare, though, it is certainly be great if there was clarity for all the projects. At the end of the day, I think it's super defensible today. Like more cost effective, scalable video streaming is a worthwhile endeavor. It only benefits society. And there's so much demonstrated substance behind behind what we're doing that is a mission worth worth mm-hmm. pursuing. So, you know, much bigger concerns for me are just, you know, the never-ending fight for sort of product market fit as you try and bring demand onto the network and launch those killer products that that take off and, and show the world how useful and successful this can be. So you know your typical uh sort of startup founders concerns at uh, juggling a million different balls in a million different areas in a complex project. And so, yeah, we're excited about the work that we're doing and the mission that we've always been pursuing. So, you know, those, those concerns are minor. As for what I'm excited about, you know, our ecosystem is, it's so rewarding to work with and we have such a great uh, network of node operators, hundreds of node operators around the world that power in this network and are looking for ways to contribute a great mm-hmm. development team. I'm just like excited about all that we can do in 2024, especially when it comes to, like I said, expanding the capabilities of the network and growing Live mm-hmm. Studio. I think it's a lot to do. It's a hard, ambitious, um, technical challenge, but as a software engineer, I like to solve those things and, and work on those things. And I think hopefully the result of that is bringing 10 to 100 times more demand to this network. That's just what I think, you know, the world's most efficient allocation of GPUs and, and infrastructure in a huge video market. So. Yeah, excited about that. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Blockville podcast. Always really interesting to bring on some of the more popular companies within the space and just really excited to see what you guys are going to be doing. Uh, I'll be watching Art Basel, uh, what you guys are building down there for sure. So thanks again for yeah, coming here on. Here now comes up tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. We're Base Blockchain is doing a big activation to Art Basel called Base House and they're doing on-chain video experiments where you can mint an NFT and watch the live streams through your NFT browser and it should be should be cool. So yeah, check out what Base is doing at Basel.